Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 270 in my conversation with University of Florida adjunct percussion and music education professor, Danielle Moreau. There's a whole lot going on in terms of concerts throughout the week to finish up the semester here at Mizzou, and I'll tell you more about them next week. But for now, let's get right to our conversation with Danielle. Danielle Moreau is currently the adjunct professor of music at the University of Florida in Gainesville, and is presently finishing up her semester as sabbatical replacement for the percussion studio and its current percussion director, Ken Broadway. Additionally, she teaches courses in music education when she's not doing the studio thing as she is this semester. She's also a regular performer, particularly with the Moreau-Vantuanen duo, a group she's formed with euphonium and tuba performer Danielle Vantuanen, who also happens to be Danielle Moreau's wife. We talk about all that and more in the interview. I had Danielle on because she just performed at PASIC last month. She was part of the New Music and Research Day performances for Percussion and Voice in one of the more unusual pieces on the program, Savino by Derek Tywinuk. The work is for marimba and recorded voice. The recording a speech in favor of marriage equality done in 2015 that is presented unedited. It is a very impressive work to put together and one that Danielle Moreau played quite well at PASIC. As I mentioned last week, this was a pretty impressive group of performances I caught on the new music with Voice Research Day. I look forward to talking more about these performances in future weeks, but for now, let's get to the chat with Danielle. We recorded this interview over Zoom on November 1st, 2021, and it begins right now. All right, so Danielle. Tell me what you are presenting and when you're presenting it at PASIC. I am playing Derek Tywinuk's Savino for Marimba and Tape. It's a you know, really unique piece in that it takes um, you know, the, the speech that was given by Diane Savino, who's a New York State senator. Uh, it was given in 2009 about marriage equality. So this was during the time when they were determining what they were going to do specifically in the state of New York. And the piece was written in 2015. So it was written several years later, uh, right about when we were having that discussion on a national level. And, um, you know, the, the piece is unique in that as the marimbust, I am uh, emphasizing her speech patterns. So the rhythm of her speech, the inflections, the mood of her speech, all of those things. And so, um, so that's what I'm going to be doing. Is the tape part, her speech just kind of straight ahead or is it, are there things that are clipped for effect or stuff like that? Yeah. Unedited. My understanding is, is that it was taken directly from the video of her giving the speech at that time. And so there's, if any editing at all, it's, it's very minimal. Um, it has, you know, moments where she makes mistakes in her words. And so she stutters a little bit. My part serves that very well. It doesn't try to 
I don't know, get around that in some way. It, it really is. There's authentic. no editing like yeah, there in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's truly unedited. The marimba part really serves exactly how she gave that speech at that time. And I think that's one of the things that I really uh, enjoy about it. It's a very passionate speech, but it's also the, the music itself is pure as it was given at that time. How did you first get connected to the work itself? It was probably in 2016. So that was a year after it had been released. And I think I had seen it on the New Works Project, which is a nonprofit organization that actually Derek is president of currently. He's on the board there. Um, But back then they had released this video just to kind of promote him and share the work that he was doing. And that's how I had found it. Remind me again, 2015, is that when was the um, Supreme Court ruling? Is that the next year? I think it was in 2015. I guess okay. I should I should know. <laughs> but I, I'm I'm pretty confident that it was that the piece had been finished slightly before because it was during the summer that the Supreme Court had ruled. This marimba part you said serves mm-hmm. like you said serves very well. Does that mean that it is equal volume, under volume. What, what's the, how is the prominence of the vo- voice part compared to how loud or soft you're playing? And are you kind of filling in gaps when there's breaks in, in the speech? Derek says at the very beginning, all of the rhythm, the dynamic, the phrasing, all of that is based on my interpretation of the speech itself. And so I'm trying to follow her rhythmic pattern as much as possible. And also, you know, dynam- dynamically, I I have opted to play more of a supportive role because I don't want to take away from the text itself. I'm just sure. adding sort of a melodic layer to the things that she's discussing. So I think that the way in which it was written, performers could interpret that differently. I've opted to um, try to be slightly underneath her volume that way i'm not taking away from the text in any way is there a click track or are you just is it just there and you are reacting to it in real time yeah it's it's just there and so it was really difficult to learn i had most of the time when we go to learn music we sit down with a metronome and we you know put the music on the stand and we practice that way couldn't do it that way and initially i was like okay i'm going to learn this phrase at a time without the text. That way I know what it's going to feel like. And I found out that I was making my own rhythmic decisions. Uh, And so then when I went to play it with the tape art, it was really, really challenging. And so I quickly learned that the best approach was taking the tape part as is slowing it down, you know, 40% or 60%, depending on what I needed. And then practicing it along with it while I was sort of sight reading it. And, and that was, that was my approach. I'm not sure it was the smoothest approach, but I I think it worked out well in the end. So what, what did you use to slow the tape down? Uh, There's an app that I have called audio stretch. And I don't know if it's available anymore. I know I purchased it when I bought my iPad originally, it's like a really old iPad, but Mm. yeah, I could just plop it in um, and slow the whole thing down. It, obviously distorts a little bit, but you know, for, for my purposes, it was essentially like taking the rhythm and expanding it out exactly as I was going to play it. Um, and then just kind of working it back in. So it, it was definitely unlike any piece I've ever learned. You know, I've, 
I've done Andy Akiho's Stop Speaking, which has a little bit of that. You know, we we need to align with the voice part at certain points. Um, but other than that, we could sort of get to make our own decisions about how we want to do that. Here, I really tried to start and stop and follow her rhythmic pattern as much as possible. So, And when you were slowing it down, you were able to not have it be like, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. That, that didn't happen. Luckily, (laughs) um, you know, her speech is very passionate. You know, you can tell that this is an important topic. And so she's speaking very quickly, even when it was slowed down, it didn't feel kind of that garbly feeling or anything like that. It still maintained a lot of its like quality, the structure and that sort of thing. What's the nature of the marimba part terms stylistically? It's this mix of, of like harmonic chordal gestures that are happening, depending on, you know, if, if I'm emphasizing just certain words within a phrase that she's giving. There are other times where I'm playing a string of notes following the entirety of her statement. Um, there's a lot of chromaticism. And, and I think that pitch content that was selected, it's the, the more that I'm getting to know the piece and I can tell it's one of those things where I'm, I'm still growing with it, if that makes sense. But, um, I can tell like why he opted to use this certain register or why he was emphasizing these certain words with that register and that, that sort of thing. So it's, it's a mix of these, um, you know, very vertical gestures mixed with these melodic lines that come out. Does this piece, where does it lie in terms of in Derek's compositional output? I don't know how many pieces he's done with electronics. He obviously writes a lot for um, percussion. He's written a piece called Dorothy Fragments for um, Spectrum Ensemble, which is also sort of in this similar vein of the LGBT um, community. I wouldn't say that it's it's far outside of his his writing style, at least not from what I've experienced of his music. Are you quite frequently playing stuff with tape or electronics? Is this kind of just in your wheelhouse there? Yeah, yeah. That's something that I'm really comfortable with, and I'm becoming increasingly comfortable with it. (laughs) You know, it gets better as it gets better. That's one of my favorite phrases. Um, Oh, sure, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Usually, the things that I end up doing require a click. So there'll be fixed media with click of some kind or our live interaction electronics. And so what ends up happening there is, you know, I'm interacting with the electronics or the electronics are interacting with me, but it's, it's not, it's a different kind of organic. I think that, you know, when I'm playing this particular piece, even though it's fixed media and I don't require a click, it still allows me to make these musical decisions as I'm going along. And so while I'm comfortable with you know, fixed media and electronics in general, it was definitely different than what I'm used to. Was this piece commissioned? It was, it was commissioned by Brian or uh, Brandon Elaw. Am I saying that right? I think I am. Brandon Elaw um, for the Zeltzman Marimba Festival. Mm. And I think it was during the, the 2015 festival. I'd have to double check. Um, but yeah, it was commissioned for that event specifically. Anything particularly technically challenging in the part itself, aside from trying to figure out how to practice it? (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, there are a number of large intervals that are spread out across the instrument and and quick changes from, you know, the lower register of the marimba to the upper end. You know, I'm not short, (laughs) but I also don't have the longest arms. And so that was just an added challenge for me personally. There are moments in the text where she is speaking very rapidly and there will be a lot of notes condensed into a very small (laughs) period of time. And so I found that to be particularly challenging when it comes out. Well, it's amazing. Like it just sounds really, really amazing alongside this particular text. Uh, But yeah, I'd say it's the string of very rapid notes and then the quick shifts from the low end to the high end or the high end to the low end. Derek's writing style is amazing. I'm not aware that this piece has been performed frequently and certainly not nearly as much as I think that it should be. So I hope that I hope it's enjoyed and I hope that it gets programmed frequently as a result. So Danielle, tell me, give me a summation of your percussion activities as they are right now. I live in Gainesville, Florida, which is home to the University of Florida Gators. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife currently lives or currently works here at UF. Uh, she's the Tubi Euphonium professor. We moved here in the summer of 2019. So we've been here majority of the pandemic. There was maybe six months prior. Um, And so I was working really hard at being a performer and an educator here in Gainesville. I think I've done a decent job of that, (laughs) all things considered. But yeah, the majority of what I I spend my time doing is is teaching and then performing uh, locally. I also perform with my wife in a duo or tuba euphonium and percussion duo. And so we spend a lot of time working on that. Currently I am serving as a sabbatical replacement at the university of Florida for Dr. Ken Broadway. So that's been this semester. uh, And it's been eventful (laughs) for sure. I've loved every minute of it. And is that sabbatical replacement just for this semester? Just for this semester. Yep. Gotcha. What, what is he doing for his sabbatical? Uh, so he had planned a trip to York. Mm. Um, and his, his, his research is, is essentially getting opportunities to perform in ways that he hadn't had the opportunity to do so. And so he's playing a concerto actually with the university orchestra, uh, coming up kind of mid November. He's given a few concerts throughout the Southeast. Uh, so he's really gotten to, to focus on that. And I hope that uh, he hasn't felt <laughs> too anxious about the work that is going on here at UF. I think things are going well. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> right, right. No, I get that. Before your, your sabbatical replacement, you were just teaching adjunct within the department? So I teach uh, within the Masters of Music Education program, which is an online program. Okay. And so it was a pretty smooth transition in terms of COVID. We were already functioning online. But yeah, so I teach within that that program, and that's a ton of fun. Uh, I think it's a really unique master's program for for music education, as I think that a number of the programs here at UF are are really unique, and they have certain things that uh, make them stand out in the crowd. Like what? Uh, okay. So for example, one of the things here at UF for undergrads is that a number of them get what's called a music and uh, music in combination with an outside field. 
And so that's the bachelor's degree. And it's different than uh, like a dual degree or a double major. They're getting one degree and that degree is music performance and engineering or music performance and astrophysics or music performance and business. And they, the way in which the the curriculum is designed is so that they almost crossfade each other. Uh, and so by the end, they, they, it's not that they have two separate degrees. They have had one degree that has functioned as, as a unit. Um, and I think that that's a, definitely a, an appealing aspect of the university. Yeah. I, I mean, I was thinking we have, at Mizzou, we have uh, the BA for mm-hmm. um, the people who do a BA are doing that with while getting a BA in in tooth that like in music and engineering, for example. That's right. pretty common here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Here and they they leave with one bachelor's degree. It'll mm-hmm. be a, a bachelor's of music degree in combination with whatever their outside field was. And oftentimes they will find ways to incorporate both of those areas into one. Maybe they might end up doing some sort of final project or, or that sort of thing. So just what less ink on the diploma. Is that what the, <laughs> what the I don't know. <laughs> I don't know exactly where it had come. It came from a lot of the students opt to come to UF, at least from the state of Florida solely for that degree option. So it, it seems to be really appealing for, for some reason. And yeah, I mean, I think all of my students are bachelors in combination with an outside field, except two education majors. So there and the studios, a- sorry, the studio is 16 at the moment. Okay. The ed is still a music ed kind of standard music ed ish. Correct. Yeah. That's a standard degree. That one just happens as is. I don't believe that you can get a combination in that because they already are right. Stretched thin. Yeah. As it is, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, you get, you get the students who come in and we're like, I'm going to do both. And then yeah. they, you know, a year and a half in, they are ready to, to kill someone because they were trying to do both. Oh yeah. 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 It's a, it's a ton of work. I, yeah. I just opted to get the music ed degree and I still felt you know, like I was taking more credits than were reasonable per semester. And yeah. Tell me a little bit more about the, even I know your sabbatical replacement, but tell me a little Mm -hmm. bit more about the percussion side of it. Uh, You know, in terms of facilities, expectations, uh, ensembles, that kind of thing. Sure. So we have uh, a percussion ensemble, the way in which we're doing it this semester is I've broken them into two quartets. And so we're doing a lot of really chamber work. We're not doing any I guess you could say large, larger percussion ensemble. Um, we have a steel band called the Sunshine Steelers. Uh, and that's <laughs> that's a, a pretty substantial group, I think. Um, they obviously get to play a lot of great, you know, steel band rep. Mm-hmm. Um, we have obviously the Pride of the Sunshine uh, marching band, who are, <laughs> I think they're 420 large this year, which feels pretty substantial. Um, they have like 28 tubas on the field or something mm. crazy. Like it's like this wall of tubas. <laughs> yeah. I think we currently have two, uh, wind bands. We have a wind symphony and a symphonic band in the spring. We added an additional concert band primarily for those who were in marching band and like, would like to continue. We have a robust orchestra and then I think in terms of, you know, facilities, it's, it's myself, uh, typically Dr. Ken Broadway, Professor Clyde Connor, who is adjunct, but he does 
Uh, currently, he's teaching the freshmen here. He teaches all drum set lessons. Um, he helps instruct the jazz bands. He's doing a jazz arranging course. So he's, even though he's adjunct, he's incredibly busy and invaluable for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, and then we have about 16 majors, a handful of minors as well, which is great. And who runs the drum line? His name is Paul Keck, runs the drum line here. And then um, our grad student, Jared Potter, is running the steel band this semester. Myself, I'm running the percussion ensemble. Typically, that's what Dr. Broadway would be doing. Um, and I know that Clyde Connor is contributing to the steel band rehearsals and that sort of thing. Are you just for this semester doing doing the percussion and not doing the online music ed, or is that also folded into what you're doing? Right now, I am not doing the, the online music ed, which is probably for the best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because my wife works at UF, I know the faculty and I, I know generally what was going on at the university, but you know, week one, there were so many questions from students that I didn't know. And and so there was definitely a major learning curve, uh, right out of the gate, even though I was working within the online program. Is some of that just because we're, you know, pretty much all back? Like, is that some of it? Oh yeah. Well, UF has been partially in person, even all last year, um, all applied faculty were meeting in person with their, their students. Um, some of the large ensembles were meeting, but they were distanced. I think they were required to be at maybe six or 10 feet. I can't remember what the the requirement was, but, um, it's been interesting. A lot of our students because of COVID have just had a, they don't understand you know, how juries usually go or how large ensemble auditions usually go. And so they have this idea of what they think it should be. And it's, it's only because COVID was, was happening. Now that we're fully shifting back into in-person, there's also that kind of that balance. If they were used to recording everything and sending it in. Oh yeah. They have to play in person to do that same audition kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I have a number of students when we were doing studio last semester, uh, they would come into the studio space and perform for Zoom, you know, and uh, there'd be people watching them, but there was nobody in the room with them. And so they didn't, they didn't know what it was like to actually perform for people. And so this semester I'm like, okay, we're going to do performances again. And they're, you know, I, I haven't done any performances or I feel like I haven't done any performances yet ever. Right. (laughs) So yeah, that was definitely a a major shift. And that was amongst, you know, the freshmen and sophomores in particular, the juniors could remember, but yeah, uh, it was more, more distant still. Yeah. Yeah. It's gotta be a, a really challenging shift yeah to yeah i feel like i see this maybe you're seeing this as well where particularly the ones who are freshmen last year are just like this is kind of another freshman year for them in so many ways yeah absolutely they because it's so different you know and i i can only imagine that this coming year is also going to be so different you know depending on where you are in the country because i mean we've all had different protocols in place and that sort of thing and so um, you could have a, a situation where as a freshman during your second semester, you had to go automatically online and then you right. could have been online all year, or most of the year. And now this year you're kind of getting back into it. So it's a interesting situation. I think that we're in, 
I had a student who tell, who told me, um, they feel like all of their college has been just turned upside down and they have no idea what college is supposed to be like. Yeah. Well, you think of the, like I said, the, this freshman last year, whose senior year of high school was just like gone, evaporated basically. Yeah. It's rough. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it really is. Yeah. Your duo. Mm-hmm. Not called the two Daniels, which I thought was an interesting, interesting touch. I have to say. Yeah. Was that considered? <laughs> um, yeah, oddly enough, no, it was not considered. <laughs> and so many people will say, why didn't you go with the two Daniels? I just, I don't understand. <laughs> uh, we started this ensemble initially as a class project. And so and initially... This was at Arizona State University. Uh, It was during the first year of my doctorate and the first year of her master's. You know, we were asked to go out into the community and give a performance. And we obviously wanted to play together, but we quickly found out there was very little rep for this instrumentation. There was like a handful of pieces. And even then we knew we couldn't travel with a five octave and, you know, this whole slew of percussion things. So, um, we started with some arrangements and and that kind of thing and quickly realized that this was something that we wanted to really pursue. And so we started doing commissioning projects. And in the first, we gave a concert, I think, I don't know, within that year. uh, And it was almost all arrangements and it was, we were nervous. We didn't think we'd have enough to fill a program. And now we have so much music that we can play, you know, four different programs if we wanted, um, which is really, really excellent. I know of Nathan Daughtry, I think, mm-hmm. has a piece for who I went to grad school with. Um, oh, cool. He, uh, oh, it's fine. Um, <laughs> I, can no I can do that because <laughs> I've known him forever. <laughs> um, I know he wrote something for, I think, Barimba and uh, Euphonium, I think, or Euphonium and Percussion. I can't remember what. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one of the only pieces I'm familiar with that that is original for that setup. Right. He has a number of pieces. I'm trying to remember. He's in a a euphonium percussion duo himself. Yeah. If I remember correctly. But um, yeah, he has a piece called Spitfire. Yeah. Which is for, yeah, euphonium and marimba. And there's also a trio version of that piece. Um, So we've actually played the duo version and the trio version of that work, which is, that was actually on our first program was that piece. One of the originals, you could say. Yes, of course. <laughs> what, what have you figured out in terms of those instruments matching or contrasting that you feel like works? I had always played with other percussionists, right? And playing with a wind player is significantly different. You know, we were very concerned with like the attack of each note or the rhythmic integrity and and not to say that they aren't, but, you know, she has to put so much air through her horn before sound is created. And so it's really helped me learn just kind of the, the breathing side of it, I guess you could say the, the, how much time it actually takes to do that. And then to think about air within music, which I think we don't think about uh, much unless we're put in that situation. Euphonium is very much a, a tenor voice. Yeah. Uh, and we think about, 
kind of the register of let's say the marimba, for example. So you're taking what is a, a wind instrument that's made of metal and comparing it or combining it with, with, uh, wood. Um, I, I just think it creates a really special sound beyond that of, you know, trombone, not to say anything bad about trombone or anything or tuba. I mean, she's also a tubist, but, um, her instrument is so dexterous and percussion is so dexterous. And so I, I think that, um, that marriage is really, really special. And she also talks about, you know, this, the sound that she's trying to create based on maybe the mallets that I'm using or the, the register that I'm in or the collection of instruments that I might be using and that sort of thing. So thinking that it was just going to be a class project <laughs> and now seeing sort of where we are now, I'm really thankful that we didn't abandon this idea and, and pursued it further. <laughs> and I guess you still like each other. So that's good. Yeah, she's okay. <laughs> It's not bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> this. Are you better at lip slurs or is she better at paradiddles? Who's who's got the who's got the lead in the non-instrument well, category? I always tell her that I taught her everything she knows on euphonium. So I'm gonna have to say me, I'm better at lip slurs for sure. Wow, impressive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you you're saying you haven't you haven't really taught her paradiddles yet. Is that what you're saying? No. No, 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 no. She can't show me up. I can't let her. Right. <laughs> <laughs> nice. You know, in the pandemic and kind of obviously cutting into how much you'd be teaching, how, how much have you all gotten to play uh, in the last couple of years? Like everyone, we all lost a lot of gigs and it was very alarming right out of the gate. I had a number of, of, jobs lined up that I was really excited about that just sort of evaporated, um, which I know we can all relate to. I think that we were lucky, uh, you know, since we are married and live together, we could still play together, even if we were quarantining. And um, we early on in the pandemic did a, what we called a call for miniatures project, where we asked people basically via Facebook and Instagram, if they wanted to write us one minute pieces and, um, we would learn them and workshop them and then perform them. And so we ended up getting, I think about 80 pieces in total, like during the summer. And we, we initially were like, well, maybe we'll get 12 and we could play a short little concert and that would be great. But no, we ended up getting so, so, so many. So we actually played a lot of music, right. You know, the first two, three, four months of the pandemic, but it was all virtual. You know, everything that we had done was virtual. Uh, and we had ended up actually getting 10 miniatures from Nathan Daughtry. So he released a new piece called Diminutives for Euphonium and Percussion. And they were part of that particular call for miniatures. Um, so yeah, so I think I think that obviously we, we had an advantage living together and so we could keep playing together. But um, we had, I think, like one kind of live gig during the pandemic. And that was it, you know, it was a local orchestra and we followed all the protocols. We had no audience. We just did this live stream and it was awkward because when you finish a piece, you think people are going to clap and there was no one, right? Nobody there. We were lucky to have this project, but at the same time, it, you know, now we're transitioning back into playing live and that feels weird. <laughs> yeah. 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 Good weird though. A good weird. Yeah. I'll take it for sure. Yeah. yeah. 
So before you both were, or at least you, but before Florida, you were mm-hmm. teaching in um, New England, right? Yeah, the University of New Hampshire, and we both were. We were teaching with the marching band there. And we were teaching throughout both New Hampshire and Maine. Uh, I had actually gone to the University of New Hampshire for my undergrad, and so that was my connection. And at the time, my family had lived up there, and so family being important to us, we opted to leave Arizona once we both finished our degrees and go back up there. Um, yeah. So we were working at the university of Florida or university of New Hampshire, um, with the marching band, which was great. And so now we're here. Were either of you full-time doing that? No, neither of us were full-time. And so we were cobbling together, you know, performing gigs and teaching gigs and that kind of thing. Very typical for right out of the gate individuals. But yeah, that was just one aspect of the work that we were doing. What were other aspects? I was working at Westbrook High School and Westbrook Middle School um, in Westbrook, Maine. And so I was the percussion specialist there. Um, She had, during the final semester, half a year that we were there, she was working at Plymouth State University, which is also in New Hampshire. she was working for music, uh, music and arts as a sales rep. Okay. So she, she had that. What else did we do? We played with the New England Brass Band, which was in Massachusetts. So yeah, just a, like anything we could find in the the vein of teaching and performing, we were we were doing. Were you having to do any pick up any other jobs just to kind of make ends meet? No, luckily no, we didn't have to do that, which was good. Yeah. Because a lot of people end up having to do that. And we were fortunate. Yeah. I I kind of imagine it that there's pockets where it might be like relatively dense. And I'm put mm-hmm. relatively in quotes. And then it seems like there's the whole lot that there's just not much of anything there, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's some very rural places for sure. <laughs> um, but I think that I can drive from the northern like the northeastern corner of Massachusetts through the tip of New Hampshire and into Maine within 20 minutes. And so oh, even wow. though, yeah, even though um, it can be very rural, I think that there it's easy to get around that entire area. Uh, and so it's, it's easy to get from Boston up to Portland and, you know, um, Boston down into Hartford and that kind of thing. It's, it's all really well-connected and easy to get around. How are they about the arts there? Does it feel like mm-hmm. it's supported or is it you trying to like, are you climbing uphill a little bit? Climbing uphill a little bit. You know, I, I think that's a, an issue nationwide generally. Sure. Um, so they're definitely not immune to that. But I mean, there's some fantastic educators and, you know, they really advocate for the arts in that area. I feel as though there was always a large audience at any concert that we gave. So there was definitely an interest, but yeah, there's always a bit of that needing to advocate for the arts and and doing fundraising and that sort of thing. Do you like snow or do you really like snow? (laughs) It depends on what's happening in the moment. I, if I don't have to shovel it, I love snow. <laughs> right. <of course. laughs> you know, as soon as I have to shovel it or drive, drive in it at night, those yeah. are the worst. That's, mm-mm. and March when it gets muddy, 
Yeah. Cause then it, cause then it's just Brown, you know, it's not, it's just dirty snow at that point. Right. <laughs> yeah. So if I'm just, if I just need to sit in my house and watch it, it's beautiful. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, of course. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's back up. So did you grow up there in that area? Yeah. I grew up in Connecticut. Okay. So I, yeah, I lived in Connecticut, uh, until I was maybe 10. And then we moved to Arizona. And so I went to high school, kind of the end of middle school and high school out in Arizona. Um, and my dad went to the University of New Hampshire. So I wanted to go back there. And I, you know, I loved New England growing up there. It was just, you know, my favorite place in the world. And so I wanted to get back there. Uh, and then I wanted to go to Arizona State for my master's. And so I opted to do that. And then I stayed for my doctorate. Got it. Did you have any family members in the arts? My grandmother on my mom's side, so it was my mom's mom, played piano. She wasn't trained. I actually don't know how she got her first piano, but she could play by ear and she could hear a song and be able to play it back. Could not read music at all. Um, That's the only musical person in my family that I'm aware of. Everybody else is surprised by my... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> my knack for it, I guess. You Your insistence to keep doing it. Yes, my commitment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so when did the percussion and or music bug hit you? Gosh, I had to be maybe six. I'm going to say six. Um, my grandma bought a small like rubber headed drum <laughs> that was designed to be a toy. And I used to walk around the fireplace at her house, just hitting it constantly. So I guess you could argue then. And then when, when I was going into fourth grade and they asked us what instruments we wanted to do, my parents were like, you always like to hit things. I feel like you should, you should play percussion. (laughs) It just seems to make sense. So yeah, I, I guess you could say when I was a kid, when my grandma bought a small drum for me, that was the initial inspiration. How does it happen if you leave Connecticut at 10, mm-hmm. had you even started the school portion of music? Yeah, I had gone through one year of of band, public school band. Okay. Uh, and it was interesting when I got to Arizona. So I would have been in like fifth, fifth grade. Yeah. Yeah, I would have been in fifth grade. And that was when they were starting their band program. And so they were a little unsure as to how I would fit into that. Um, it worked out fine, which is, which is good. I remember, you know, and this is very typical. I was the only girl in my section. And so, um, I had never played any mallet percussion when I was first starting. And then when I got, once we had moved all of these boys in my section just wanted to play snare drum or drum set or, you know, so I was left playing bells. And I think that's actually it worked out really well because I had learned all of my scales early on and it, it made me feel really comfortable behind that instrument in a way that I might not have had I not had that. I mean, I, I hope that you did get to play some drums soon. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I did. I, I fought my way in. <laughs> yeah. God, of course. Yeah. It's always so stupid. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so what kind of, what was the the district like that you were in junior high, high school in Arizona? Yeah, it was a large district. Um, 
I think that my elementary school and my, my elementary school was K eight, which was pretty typical or mm-hmm. K yeah. K eight. Uh, very typical. Um, I think we were one of maybe seven or eight that fed into one high school. And so high schools were constantly being built in this area to accommodate for the number of, of kids that were there or moving there. Where, where in Arizona was this? This was in Peoria, Peoria, Arizona. Yeah. Here's how I know I've heard of Peoria. My, Mm -hmm. uh, one of my older brothers just moved there. Um, Oh, really? Yeah. He's a ER physician and, um, I don't know. He's working somewhere in Phoenix. I, I couldn't tell you where. I mean, like he just started. But but anyway, yeah. like Peoria, Arizona, which again, it's like I know of Peoria, Illinois. Yeah. And, uh, there's anyway. So I actually, it's funny you said that. That's cool. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Most people are like, I have no idea. What yeah. Yeah. You're talking about. <laughs> oh, I've never been. I mean, I, I just know it exists. That's all. Yeah. 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 It's west of Phoenix. Okay. That's, and that's usually what I tell people it's West of Phoenix. And they're like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Great. (laughs) I'm I'm sure that an area has to be West of Phoenix. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) And that's it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So that's the big kind of the big, the high, the big high school area for that. And where they're just, because it's just a high transplant area basically. Yeah. And at the time, um, you know, they, the neighborhood that we had moved into was brand new and, you know, beyond our yard, it was just desert. And if you went to it now, you never would have thought that because it's all built up. And so it was really, they were really starting to push that out. Um, and I think while I was there, they built, I think two additional high schools during my time there, um, which seems wild to me. I remember when I was a freshman, we needed to be at a separate building because the occupancy level was too much for one building. And so they just sent us to another school while they worked on that issue. So, so yeah, but it, it was a really great district. It, um, supported the arts. Um, you can always support the arts more, I think, but you know, we had a strong marching band program. We had a strong, uh, concert band program, jazz program. We were starting an orchestra program at the time that I was there. And so I, I think that that's grown significantly as well. So yeah, really, really great opportunities as a high school student. I'm I'm glad that I had those at my disposal. When you were growing up, were you involved in anything that was not music, uh, sports, church, student government, anything like that, that was filling out your time? I played softball. Okay. That was, that was probably the only other thing that I really did. Like I felt like all that I did was music and softball. (laughs) And I remember spending, I would spend hours and hours and hours, you know, out on the field with my dad practicing batting or because I was a first baseman. And so I was Mm -hmm. taking ground balls and that kind of thing. Um, So, yeah, it was either practicing percussion or practicing softball. Nice. (laughs) Yeah. How how was your, what was your game like as a first baseman? First Um, base person, excuse me. Yeah. Uh, First base person. So, um, I'll be honest. I wasn't the best hitter. I wasn't mm-hmm. the most confident hitter. Mm-hmm. I had a good eye. And so I would get walked a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was really fast. So once I got on base, you know, I could zip around the, the bases and it nice. would be, it'd be fine. And then I was, I prided myself in my fielding skills. Mm. <laughs> you know, I was really fearless. Like people would throw the ball in the dart and I'd be like, that's okay. I'm going to pick it. It's going to be fine. <laughs> it won't hit me in the face. It's right. right yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
You were you were the model uh, infielder because you were like the balls. Even if it hits a hop, I'm right. I'm not. I'm not picking the glove up. Yeah, I'm stopping it. It's like, right. <laughs> like you know, catchers. Like all they their job is just to block the ball. Right. That's what I was doing over there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you you can't let it get past even if it even if you drop it just as long as it doesn't get behind you. Absolutely. Yeah. Because <laughs> there's nobody back there. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so. What were you marching? Yeah, I was a marching band. Um, so my freshman year, I marched tenors. Mm-hmm. Sweet. Um, sophomore and junior year, I marched snare. And then I shifted over to the front ensemble for my senior year. Did you did you miss uh, wearing equipment? <laughs> oh. <laughs> so because I was in Arizona, uh-huh. I think that I... <laughs> I, I really enjoyed not having to carry around so much equipment in the middle of the summer (laughs) in my senior year. Um, I definitely loved, you know, the parts that I would get, especially on tenors. Like, Oh yeah. There there were a ton of fun. Yeah. Uh, And then when I went to to college, I marched snare and tenors again. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know if it's that I missed it. I'm really glad that I had that experience because now I've taught both front ensemble and battery. And I think that if I had not had that front ensemble, I wouldn't have really had the same perception of how it worked. Was this a competitive band? Yeah. Yeah. In Arizona, it was pretty competitive. I don't want to say is it as competitive as, you know, Texas. I know Texas is incredibly competitive, but um, it was definitely modeled after that in like a DCI sort of approach at the time. Um, so yeah, we were, we were okay. <laughs> I think we, we regularly got excellence. I don't think we ever got any superiors, but that's all right. Yeah. Cause I, I've heard from people who grew up and did a lot of stuff in on the West coast. I mean, not necessarily Arizona, but like California, Nevada, that kind of stuff. There, there's this whole, isn't there this whole kind of segment that's like, California, Nevada, Arizona, like there's, there's like this whole scene that's very specific to West coast, like marching. I've, I've heard this sound familiar. Am I making this up? I may be making this up. I definitely felt like there's much more emphasis on marching band out there than like new England, for example, even though they have marching bands, there were a number of of people who would join the marching band at UNH, for example, who had never been in marching band before because they didn't have one at their, their high school. And almost every high school that I knew in Arizona had one. Yeah. If they had a music program, they had a strong marching band program. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know specifically about the Southwest in general, but I do know that it was, it was definitely a, um, important aspect of a music program in Arizona for sure. So what leads you to decide to go? It's really weird. Like the, the, the corners of the country that you've yeah. been in. Um, well, I mean, what leads you to, to decide to go to New, New Hampshire for undergrad? Part of it is that I, I knew I wanted to get back to New England in general. Okay. Um, and I had applied to a number of schools there the importance of the student at UNH. That was, that was what I had. That was the impression I got when I went and I interviewed and auditioned and did all of that. Um, I just felt like the things that I was interested in, 
were important and valued. And I didn't feel like I needed to fit some mold just because that was the nature of that school or something like that. Um, and it was also a small liberal arts school. And so even though it's the flagship university of the state, like the state in and of itself is pretty small. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. when you talk about the flagship university of Florida, for example, I guess just, it pales in comparison. No, no offense to it, but, um, Yeah, I just, I, I think that I really liked the, I don't think intimacy is the right word, but just the, I don't know, the smaller size, but also the liberal arts approach to an education. And who was teaching up there when you were there? Her name is Nancy Smith. Okay. So she's the principal percussion of the Portland Symphony Orchestra. Um, she plays frequently down in, in Boston as well. And she's still at the university actually. Mm. So, yeah. What kinds of things did you, when you get there, do you find you really need to get better at? I felt like I was a strong mallet player, but I didn't have a good sense of four mallets necessarily. I, I had played four mallets in jazz band, but it was like, here's a vibraphone and here's four mallets. Like nobody told me how to hold them. And so I just sort of guessed on how to yeah. do it. Yeah, yeah. So there was a little bit of that just learning how to, to, you know, pick a grip and then work sure. on that grip. So that was probably the first thing that, <laughs> that we started with. Yeah. Uh, I didn't play a lot of drum set when I was in high school. And so I ended up taking drum set lessons, which I firmly believe that drum set should be an integral part of the concert curriculum, you know, sure. for percussionists. I, I just yeah. think it's so valuable what I learned from playing that instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, those were probably the two things that I felt like I needed to focus on the most from my, from a percussion standpoint. And was being in marching band a requirement? It was not required. It was strongly encouraged for music education majors. Um, I was going to do it regardless, mm-hmm. but it's not required. And they also have a, uh, like a marching band skills class that Mm -hmm. I had had taken, which I think, again, I don't think people should be forced necessarily to take percussion as, or to take um, marching band as part of their degree. But if you're going to be an ed major, nothing is, you know, better than literally experiencing what it is like to be on the field and to have to do all of the things that you need to do. The things that I learned in my skills class were, how to set drill or companies to buy from and that kind of thing. Not at all actually being on the field. Yeah. No. You're supposed to do that. That's why you march, Danielle. Come on. Yeah. (laughs) 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 What were the facilities like up there? Think of a good way of saying it. <laughs> they could um, be better, right? They they could be better. They're original. <laughs> so that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> um they they could use some love. They could use some some, yeah, some uh, TLC for sure. sure. It's just, you know, the building was built, gosh, I want to say in like the 60s or the 70s, something like that. So the building yeah. is just, it needs needs a new building, you know, it yeah. doesn't work the way that it does. It used to. And, you know, it doesn't have an elevator, for example. So it doesn't meet right. some of just like the basic accessibility needs that yeah. is expected today. Um, yeah. 
you know, they had everything that I needed for my education. And so I value that, but it would benefit strongly from a new building. That's for sure. So if you know any millionaires who would like to donate. Right. Well, a billionaire is probably. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I guess it depends on the building. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's not just, I mean, because, yeah, the stairs are one issue that would obviously be a pain for percussion, but it's also doorways. Oh, yeah. There's no way that the doorways fit anything, I'm sure. No, yeah. We we had to give our percussion recitals in the band room Mm -hmm. because they just couldn't go anywhere else, you know? If we had to do, we had a... A recital hall on the lower floor. If we needed to do anything down there, we had to either take the instrument apart or precariously march it down the stairs and try to get it like, you know, at an angle yeah. to get it around the corners. And yeah, not, not wise looking back on it. That was not the right way to go about it, but yeah. Well, and you have to figure out, Okay, how heavy is this? And am I willing to be the person at the bottom? Oh, oh yeah, as we're yeah. taking it downstairs. Yeah, I was. I was always like the the foreman or the four right. person. You know, you were overseeing. Just, yeah, I, I oversaw the process just just to make sure everything went smoothly. That was my All role. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's that's good. That's smart. You just, <laughs> someone's got to call that out, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I have no shame. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good role for me. I'll take it. Yeah, know. yeah. <laughs> nice. What was some of the lit that you got to play when you were an undergrad? Like for percussion solos like, yeah, specifically? Yeah, solos, ensemble, and you know, any of that stuff. Yeah. Um, obviously, I did Yellow After the Rain, a mm-hmm. classic. Yep. <laughs> Let's see. I did two Mexican dances, mm-hmm. um, which... I'm looking back on it was a major turning point, I think in my four mallet playing, cause it, it pushed me in a way that I hadn't been pushed yet. I sure. think is, is kind of the way to, to look at it. Yeah. Um, gosh, what else did I do? I played uh top tons, which is a multiple percussion solo. Okay. Um, Eckhart Kopetsky. Um, what else? I did prelude one, Christine, mm. uh, which, is one of my favorite timpani solos. I'm not the biggest fan of timpani mm-hmm. because I, I haven't found my love for timpani yet is what I should say. <laughs> just, um, just generally or, or as a solo instrument? As a solo instrument. Okay, sure. No, I, yeah, that's, as a solo like, that's fine. Yeah. 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 I, I'll find, I'll find my passion for it one day, but. You, you need to, you need to look, watch um, all of the uh, Bill Schultes. Uh, oh, Cause yeah. he plays awesome uh, Tiffany stuff. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, Brazilian landscape, May Rosaro. Okay. Did one of those pieces. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then, you know, portraits and rhythm, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, uh, modern method of movement. Yeah. Yeah. All that. Do you go right to master's? Did, you said you got an ed degree. Were you thinking I may just jump on this band director route or were, was that not what you had in mind? I had originally thought that I wanted to be a wind band conductor. I, I wasn't going to pursue percussion performance as yeah. a career. And when I was teaching, when I was doing my student teaching, there was a time when I was on the podium and we were getting a lot done. I felt like it was a really productive rehearsal. Uh, and then I had a number of students come up to me afterwards and just tell me that it was their least favorite rehearsal that they had ever had. And that, yeah, it felt really deflating for me because it was, 
Yeah, it was exactly what I had wanted, you know, that just, but it wasn't for them. And so I think in that moment, I was like, maybe public school teaching, at least at this level is not what I want to be doing. And at the time I, I was applying for master's programs at both, um, wind band conducting and then percussion performance. Cause I wasn't really sure what it was I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, and I, I ended up sitting back and saying, look, what do I want to be <laughs> when I grow up, you know? Yeah. And I, I just saw myself more as a professor of percussion than, you know, a large ensemble director at a university. And so that's what really influenced me in choosing to do a performance master's. So does that mean you do end up going directly into a master's? Yeah, I went directly. And you knew that you wanted to head back to, you had enough? You had had enough of New Hampshire, (laughs) is that what you realized? Yeah, I, well, (laughs) I don't know. It's, it's, it's tough. It, I loved both places. So I was just kind of, you know, flopping back and forth between the two. Um, Obviously like New England was where I grew up. And so I, I had a fondness for that. But then a lot of my formative years took place in Arizona, especially from a musical standpoint. And so, yeah, I wanted to get back out, out there and, and continue doing work out there. And you're there the whole time with JB. I was there the whole time with JB. Um, I'm trying to remember, he might've stayed in a year after I had graduated before he retired or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but yeah, JB was my professor the entire time that I was there along with, you know, Simone Mancuso, um, Dr. Mark Sunkett before he had passed, um, Tom Moyo, Sean Tilburg. It was really a fantastic group of professors to work with. When you do your master's, do you have an assistantship? I did not my first year. Um, my second year, I was a TA with Dr. Mark Sunkett. Um, so this was, I think it was technically within the ethnomusicology department. Okay. And so um, he taught a course on the history of West African music. Mm. So I was a TA for that. And then I was assisting in teaching jazz in America, which is also a history course. Um, And then he taught uh, an African drum ensemble and a percussion jazz ensemble at the university. And so my role was uh, assisting with those particular ensembles and classes. What do you feel is different about being a grad student versus undergrad at that point? Oh, I found the transition from my undergrad to grad school challenging, particularly challenging, more so than going from high school um, just into college. How so? Um, You know, I'm not entirely sure. I'm wondering if it's, if it was the amount of time that, because, you know, in your master's, you have so much time that you can devote to performing. Yeah, Yeah, to playing. And I think I was, I was, I had gone from, being a music education major where I was taking 23 Mm -hmm. credits a semester and to having all of a sudden time. (laughs) And I I think I liked, I didn't know how to handle that. Yeah. It it was a little startling out of the gate. It worked out, but Mm -hmm. that was definitely an interesting change, a, a big shift for me. Yeah. I mean, when you don't have to learn clarinet fingerings and you could free your brain up. Oh Yeah. Yeah. And I had to start thinking like, so if I have eight hours, should I practice eight hours or like, (laughs) you know, and then I had to start thinking really about quality versus quantity, which, you know, I thought about quality when I was practicing in my 
undergrad, but it was a different kind of quality that I could strive for because now I had that time to, yeah. to say, wow, I, you know, that's where I've always wanted to be. I'm going to end up going there. Sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's a fascinating thing. I, I've, I've said to the grad students here about, um, you know, your job, the you know, master students, I'd be like, your job is to play. Like when I play, I'm doing this for my own mental health, not because I have to. I don't have to do it for, for my job here. It's like mm-hmm. your job is to play. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's just totally different if you come yes. from being a music ed major in particular, sure. you know. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you don't have to take general education classes. You know, as a yeah. going to a liberal arts school, I had to take certain philosophy bio probably yeah right yeah exactly all that yeah 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 and there's value to that don't get me wrong i'm glad that you are required to do that but yeah it was just like totally different totally different did you i'm curious of of those classes the the (laughs) non-music did you have a favorite i took a class called making babies which was exactly what it sounds like um (laughs) Yeah, we learned all about that process. <laughs> okay. And uh, yeah, I think that was fun. <laughs> that was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This, this counted as a core class? Oh, yeah. A science class, a biology class. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Impressive. Yeah. There's, there's a lot more to talk about than just making babies. <laughs> I, if, if it's a semester-long course, I certainly hope so. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so... Yeah, that's fascinating. Mm. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you what you remember. Uh, <laughs> you know, you're there. You you do decide to go get your doctorate there also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, how far along was it that you realized that you wanted to stay there when you were doing your master's? You know, and that's such a tough, it's a tough thing to think about. Um, I think it was the second semester of my first year that I knew that I wanted to stay a combination of the university itself and then the opportunities that I had at my disposal in Phoenix, because Tempe, which is where Arizona state is, is, I don't know, 20 minutes away from Phoenix. And there's just such a prominent art scene just in that whole area. And so I knew that I wanted a place like that. I wanted a place that had all of the things that the university could offer me and my education and then outlets outside of the university. And I, it was difficult to, to see that, uh, in other places. I know that there are other universities that like, that are like that, but I also knew that, you know, I loved the, the faculty. I didn't feel like I had gotten everything I could out of them yet. So yeah, that's what it was about the second semester of my first year that I knew I wanted to stay. Tell me a little bit about the different, like the different styles of, teaching you saw from a professor at New Hampshire and then at Arizona State? You know, for better or for worse, I think that the Northeast can be a little cutthroat. Um, You know, it's, it's very, it feels very do or die. Yeah. And so a lot of times I would get that feeling when I would take lessons, you know, it's, this is do or die. And then when I went out to Arizona, it was much more of a, a yeah man vibe, <laughs> you know, it was, it was more laid back and it was still, you know, you have to be the best that you can, but the, the pressures I think were a little bit different. 
that was the biggest thing that I noticed between the two, the two locations specifically. And I think that I want to say that other universities in either one of those areas would kind of have that similar impression. That either cutthroat or laid back, was that internal or you just got, or that was the people that you were interacting with who you got that sense from? I don't think it was internal. Okay. I, I think it was an external external thing. Um, you know, if you wanted to get a gig in Boston, good luck. you have to, yeah, you have to work hard to get that gig in Boston. And I think right. that was kind of part of it is that it was, it was being honest. You know, my professors sure. would tell me this is the truth about this situation. And I think that in Arizona, it was less a focus on that and more of a, you know, you can do anything that you want to do. Yeah. It takes a lot of work and it's going to be hard. And there's going to be other people who are competing for that that doesn't mean you can't do it. You right. just have to do X, Y, and Z. And I've heard similar things from people who have gone to like heart, for instance, uh, uh-huh. or, or mm-hmm. NEC. Um, yeah. And that, and some of it, it sounds like is that there's just a lot of, there's a lot of people who, if you're new to, new to that area of the Northeast is a lot of people who are there before you, who kind of have their own pathways in and you're just kind of, I don't know. You're either waiting or yep. you just may not get the call ever. Cause yep. that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you get offered a gig, you have to take that gig. Yeah. Cause if you don't take that gig, you may not get another gig and that gig will help you get other gigs. Yeah. yeah. A lot of gigs. If you get that one gig, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then you have to do a great job at that gig, you know, not to say that you shouldn't, do your best at any gig, but like, it just feels like there's more pressure on it as a result. Did anything feel different when you start the doctorate versus the master's? My situation was a little unique in that professor that I was TAing for had passed away the summer between my master's and my doctorate. And so there was, there was a little bit of a, what do we do now? Like a frantic, we have to figure out next steps with the courses that are going to be taught. And so I ended up taking on a number of the courses that he had taught. Um, and I, I could not have filled his shoes, right? I mean, he was sure. obviously an expert at the things that he did, but um, that was definitely the the first year of my doctorate was heavily teaching and, and that sort of thing. And that was a, that was a big shift for me in terms of, you know, the, the course load or the uh, study itself it was not. It felt much more seamless going from my master's into my doctorate. And I think that's because it was going from one graduate degree to another. And so I still had, I had experienced what it was like to have the time devoted to, to practicing and to doing my craft. So your assistantship, excuse me, was mm-hmm. following in Dr. Sunkett's kind of course load? Yeah. My understanding is I took on all of, if not most of his course load. Um, there may have been a course or two that I was not responsible for or had been given to somebody else, but I was teaching the African drum ensemble, the percussion jazz ensemble. Um, I did a, the history, the jazz in America course. Um, and those were all his courses at the time. What's the finishing item for the doctorate uh, document or was like a slew of recitals or some mix? They call it a doctoral project and you have to produce a document. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, it needs to be new research, but it's not the same level as like a PhD dissertation. And so we don't call it a dissertation, but it, it functions similarly to that. Yeah. Uh, and then we had three recitals I opted to give, and they were, you know, primarily solo um, yeah. recitals. They didn't have, you know, a chamber requirement or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I opted to do the three solos. I did a duo uh, recital with my wife, and then I did a partial lecture recital just about my my topic. Which was? I talked about percussion jazz ensemble uh, at the collegiate level, much like drum set should be part of concert studies, I think. Mm-hmm. I also think there's a lot of value to studying jazz within a traditional percussion ensemble, you could say. And so it was all about establishing a group like that at the collegiate level and sort of um, giving you know, a, a one-year curriculum on how that would be structured or in my opinion, how that should be structured. Um, there were a number of arrangements that I did within the document itself. And then we performed those at the end of the semester as part of that class that I was teaching. Does it function at least kind of conceptually like a, like a combo? Is that kind of, or is it thought of in more of a big band sense? I guess it could be either, but what was the kind of the way you were realizing it? That's a really good question. Everybody asked me that particular oh, question. Cool. Oh, well, then um, it's not that good. I, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> every time I taught it, I thought of it like a larger ensemble, not necessarily the way that a big band might be structured or anything like that. Sure. Um, so it still functioned like a chamber ensemble, but it had more traditional style charts. You know, I, the, yeah. the arrangements that I did were much more specific. It wasn't just a lead sheet that we would read down and yep. improvise over. We had, um, you know, very clear, much more like how a, a big band chart might look. Yeah, yeah. And so it was definitely in my mind. I tried to do a combination of, you know, how a big band might were, go. Were you doing? You yeah. were, had the ultimate fake book. Did you have that? And you absolutely, were just off that? yeah. Nice. All right, we just threw down the real book and. <laughs> <laughs> This is for all yeah, C so, instruments, so it's perfect for, for a percussion jazz orchestra. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so much for my doctoral project when you have the fate book, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I thought of it sort of as a combination of the two, for sure. Because I'm, I'm thinking about like a, like the layout of a of our comping instrument for instance mm-hmm. so were you moving the piano to just like mallets or or like vibes only or how, how were you kind of making that distinction most of the charts that i arranged were primarily vibraphone and marimba and they would have very specific roles so like the the low end of the marimba tended to do more of the comping or, you know, depending on who was soloing at, at certain sections, I tried to make it a little bit more flexible just to, you know, accommodate for different scenarios. Um, but we always had a, I, I envisioned having a bass guitarist and a drum set player and then everything else happening on a keyboard instrument. And so depending on what you want in your ensemble or what, how many people, that kind of thing, um, we would have, I had a couple bell parts that were written out, like... <laughs> Glock jazz glockenspiel, <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. and some uh some some xylophone depending on the the tunes that we were working on. So jazz glockenspiel. Jazz glock. 
Mm. Can't get enough of it, right? Yes. Doesn't that sound great? Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, it's the thing you never knew you needed in your life. Right, yeah. I <laughs> Side note on that. You know, there's something for everyone. I'll just I'll cite that as an as an opener, <laughs> just to say it's always funny when when I I'll hear other percussionists be like, you know, it's like we should write. I should write something for like Glockenspiel Quartet, you know, or something oh. like that. And I was and I yeah. just be like, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you do you. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. You just live your best life. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. Yeah. yeah. Be the capital of Glock Quartet literature. Right. Somebody's got to be, you know? Right, yeah. <laughs> it's like, meanwhile, I was like, I, I was like, one Glock is more than enough for, you know? <laughs> yeah. Agreed. <laughs> now, Cortale Quartet. All right. Now, we're, now I'm listening. <laughs> yeah. Now you're on to something. I like right. that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I, I'm assuming that that's got to – you can fill out that group with, you know, like like if you wanted to, that that could also fill out with, you know, congas, bongos, timba, like if you want to – if you're thinking lit, it yep. could just easily be extended in that direction if you're, if you're coming from a percussion perspective. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So that sounds like fun. I mean, that, that seems like a, one of the more fun aspects of it. Oh yeah. I, I loved it. It was, and, and I feel like sometimes the idea of improvising can be really daunting. Sure. You know, if you've, if you've never done it before and, you know, I think that when you're in a homogenous group like that, it's, it's not where we're all on the same footing, right? We're all classical percussionists. We're all trying to do this thing together. I've gained a lot from at least trying to improvise. Yeah. <laughs> you know, practicing the art, even though, you know, that is a lifelong commitment in and of itself. Like I'll, yeah. I'll never be as good at improvising as I would like to be. <laughs> sure. Yeah. In this round of, of people that I'm interviewing for, for this particular pace, like one of them is, uh, I don't know if you know, Juan Alamo at uh North mm. Carolina Chapel Hill. So one of his things that he had he has his own um jazz group that he leads on marimba. Oh cool. I think it's him and piano and then he kind of fills out the rest. But he it's the same kind of concept and a lot and his presentation is on improvising like on, on a lot of in, marimba improv, improvisation outside of a jazz context. It's pretty it's pretty cool. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's funny, like, you know, I think we have this idea that improvising is jazz. Like it's, it's solely dedicated to jazz, right? That's you, you just make up a melodic line over a chord structure and, you know, but I talk about it a lot in lessons where, you know, I always, I don't want to say the same musical statement every time. Maybe I want to change it a little bit and that can be in to a certain extent improvisation, right? Sure. From our vantage point. So yeah, so I always try to make those comparisons. Like it's all so much more connected than you might realize. Yeah. It's even more connected if you if like if you hear about some of that from like your music history class because mm -hmm. like Mozart was improving, 
Uh, Clementi was improving. Beethoven is improving. List was. I'm mean, like. Oh yeah. I can eat. Like, everybody was did improv <laughs> like in the class in the yeah. classical world. Uh, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was, it's not so, like you said, it's not solely a jazz thing. Good. It's a good connection. I think it, that's an easy, we're even trying, it's cool. My, the, the theory professor, the main theory professor here at Mizzou, and I teach one of the oral skills classes and he, he actually makes the oral skills students do like the littlest bit of improv, but just even that is, and I know like it's stressful for the, for the students, but it's, an extremely valuable skill for them to be aware of and have to do in a theory class. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've never actually heard of it doing it that way. I like that. That's a it's, good. Yeah. I mean, we, we tried to set up, give them structures to, mm-hmm. you know, to, to kind of understand, like, it's like, you're going to improv, but th- like, here's a progression. Here are ways you can yeah. do it. And then, and even if they, um, even if they've kind of pre-planned a lot of it, it's still improv because mm-hmm. we didn't give them any of the stuff to to fill out the melodic material. Right, exactly. We transcribe solos by people and then we practice those solos. I mean, it becomes part of our language. And so right. fragments of that might come out in our playing anyway. So it's not like we haven't, one of the reasons why we practice our scales so much is because then hopefully when we go to see those passages in music, we're already ready. We've already played them. I, I think it's a lot like that as well. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Finish up with random ass questions. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. First couple are not random. Uh, first question. What's an issue percussion, either in percussion education or percussion performance that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts. I think I hate when, when there is equipment that needs to be brought back to certain spaces so that other people can use them and then they are not there when you expect them to be. And then you need to go on this giant hunt for that one instrument or that one, you know, that one, that one stand or whatever. That's what irks me the most, I think. (laughs) So it's possible this is something you were encountering this semester quite a lot. (laughs) Yes, possibly even this day. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really yeah. Fresh in the mind of Danielle Moreau. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> I hear. You. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> this next question: Take this wherever you want to go. Being a percussionist who is also woman, who is mm-hmm. also LGBTQIA plus. Mm-hmm. Floor is yours. Oh. You know, it sounds unique. I'm not always sure that it is like in 21st century, it's so common to be a woman in percussion or it should be, or a member of the LGBT community in percussion, or it should be, you know, that's my first impression about it. I think that it sounds unique, but you know, I don't think that it is. I don't think it's as unique as people might think that it is. Sure. Did, did it feel like for you at all, you have any concerns about about it for your own the LGBTQIA part? Like any concerns about being out, I guess, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I mean, a hundred percent, yes. I mean, I've been fired for it, even though it's I treat my professional life and my personal life as 
separate entities. Sure. Um, but I've been fired for it, even though it, I don't think it really impacted my ability to work. Um, the only exception being my duo. And I think that, you know, my wife and I have talked about this a lot. We've had people who tell us, you need to tell everyone that you're married, <laughs> you know, because people will come up to us and say, you have such a unique chemistry, <laughs> you know, it creates something unique in and of itself. But yeah, I think that um, it's interesting living in Florida, being being part of the LGBT community and living in Florida. Um, you know, Arizona was becoming increasingly more diverse as I was there for my, my master's and my doctorate. New England is a very accepting place. Um, Florida is probably the least of all of the places I have been. So I'm, I'm regularly, it's always in the back of my mind, just like as a safety thing, it's more of a safety thing than a, a, you know, fear of being accepted. I think it's, it's really just my own well-being. Um, but yeah, I, I, sometimes I think that being gay is the least interesting thing about me. You know, it just, it happened, (laughs) you know, I, yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't make any conscious choices about it, I guess. And so, um, yeah, it, it's definitely, uh, I grapple with it at times, but not never in a negative way. I don't think I'm ever grappling with it in a negative way. No, oh, that, that's, that's great. I, th- I do think it's funny when you're like, it's like you two have real chemistry together and you're like with my wife. Well, I'm, I would hope so. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I, I, yeah. Not at all surprised when you yes. say that. I'm, I'm glad you think that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I agree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's hilarious um yeah uh, very cool all right some other questions uh has uh and on a different on different wavelength um <laughs> ha- has anyone ever nailed an impression of you and if so how'd they do it i'm gonna say no not not to my knowledge <laughs> maybe my students without me knowing <laughs> but but nothing to your yeah, face. Not, I don't think so. Yet. Nothing to my face. Yet. Yeah. The day will come. Maybe the yeah. end of the semester, these students will be like, I've been working on this. That's what I've spent all my practice time doing. Right. <laughs> that, and you're like, Had great impression. I, I'm yeah. sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you have to be practicing something, I guess. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, I had to give you an F, but man, I give you an A for, for that. And that was wonderful. That's the best impression of yeah. me I've ever seen. Yeah, right. (laughs) Your your paradiddles are are garbage, but (laughs) (laughs) you nailed my laugh. So, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Nice. What is one skill you have that you're an all time great at, but you could never actually get paid for? (laughs) You couldn't make any money doing it. Oh man, that's a tough one. I feel as though, so I'm, I enjoy bourbon. That's oh, good. one of the okay. things that, that, <laughs> that during the pandemic, I, I discovered a love for, for mm-hmm. whiskey as a general. I think that in my own house, I'm a very good, uh, whiskey reviewer, though. I really don't think I would stand up to anybody else in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I, yes, I, 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 I see. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> You, you, you've, uh, you've sampled quite a lot. It sounds like maybe over during the pandemic times. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yes. And I'm very opinionated about all of them. Of course. As you should <laughs> <Yeah>. be. 
bourbon. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> <Just kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. Uh, what is a great movie and what is a terrible movie? Christmas Vacation is a great movie. Mm-hmm. Really like that one. Yeah. Christmas about, Vacation is a really good movie. How about one of the Santa Claus movies, maybe, or something like that? Yeah, those those aren't very good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are duds. <laughs> yeah. We, we, I was just going to keep it Christmas themed if you were going <laughs> to stay in that vein. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. What is a favorite book? Any of the Harry Potter books. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wait, I'm do, a, you have a, do you have a favorite of the seven? Of the prime, of um, the original seven. I know that there's like some, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm going to have to say, oh, it's tough because they're important to me for different reasons. Obviously, the Sorcerer's Stone, which is the first, because that's the first that I had ever read. Mm-hmm. I really like the Goblet of Fire. Um, but then I'm going to, it was getting so dark at the end. Like, I think Deathly sure. Hallows was like the most mature sure. book that I, yeah, like that one just stands out to me as the story was progressing. Once we got to book the end of book four, I was like, oh, it's getting dark. And then just kind of snowballed. So, yeah, I'm going to have yeah. to say, Deathly Hallows. If I had to pick one, I'd go with Deathly Hallows. Nice. What do you think of the movies before I even get that? Where are you on the movies? You know, I think that any time that you take a book and turn it into a movie, it's a little risky. Sure. Because there's going to be things that are left out or there's going to be the ways that I imagine the book to go or scenes to, to unfold, they're mm-hmm. not unfolding the way that I imagine them. Right. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I like them. I like them, but I, I try to separate them a little bit from the books themselves, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I hear you on that. Uh, well, it's funny. is cause I, I, I recently talked to someone who's, it was goblet of fire was, was her favorite. And my, my wife's favorite, I think is that one. Or is Order of the Phoenix, is that five? Is that the fifth one? I think that's the fifth one. I think it's between those two books. Yeah. But I think, isn't Goblet the one that has the tournament? Like, it doesn't have like mm-hmm. a... Okay, that's... Yeah, yeah it has the, the Triwizard Tournament in it. Yeah, that, I think that's why that's her favorite. Yeah. I mean, that's... It was really good. That was yeah. a ton of fun. But it at the end, it just got like dark right away yeah you know i don't want to spoil it for anybody but like when cedric books dies kind of, books have been around for a while now come on <laughs> yeah so hopefully i'm not yeah <laughs> but yeah the death at the end i was like whoa yeah wait a minute i wasn't right. ready <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah the you know the interesting the thing with the because I, I think this coincided for me with the movies was the the third one at was that azkaban Prisoner of Azkaban. Yeah, the Prisoner of Azkaban. That, that was the yeah. first one where I felt like, and I think the movie did this too, where I felt like it was actually, I could relate to the characters now. Like the first two uh-huh. were very much, and some of this was my age when I read them, but I was like, hey, this is kids, like whatever. And then they yeah. were like teenagers. Oh, yeah. And it's like, all right, now, now. Yeah. Like- <laughs> yeah. There's like a change, a maturity shift. In yeah. that, right in that area, that third, fourth. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, have you ever seen the meme of uh, the um, the ones where it's all, they've recreated all the titles, but from Hermione's perspective? 
No. It's it's one of my favorites because it's like um, Hermione Granger and that time I was a Time Lord, you know, like. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It's like stuff like that. It's like basically we could just rewrite these all as Hermione stories and they would be probably better, honestly, for, for yeah. being honest. Oh, she's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. She's yeah. been great from book one. Like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Living where you have. Do you have a sports fandom? Growing up in New England, I love the Red Sox. Uh, right. Yeah. I was I worried to. about that. Yeah. Yeah. Have to. Yeah. Um, now that I live in Florida, I'm really trying to be a Rays fan. It's hard because they compete directly with the, with Red, the Red Sox. Yeah. And see, and as but a Yankees, really... and as someone who grew up as who grew up in New York as a Yankees fan, I'm fine with that uh-huh. mutual destruction. That's that's totally yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure yeah. you would be. Though <laughs> so the Yankees are like definitely a rival of the Rays now too. Oh sure. Yeah, not so much this year. No, but... no, we you know you guys. It was not a. Uh, you know, the fact we made it to the to the playoff, the playoff, whatever, that yeah, one game thing was like was game. kind of a miracle, honestly. Well, but then like, the Rays just unraveled. Yeah. In the series against the Red Sox. Like I don't know what happened there. It was yeah. But, yeah. So anyway. So yeah, I mean it's either it's either the Rays or the Marlins. I can't bring myself to be a Marlins fan. Yeah. In part because they're also owned by Derek Jeter, right? I There's don't count that. that. Maybe you would. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Definitely <Yeah>. would. <laughs> right. But your time in, in uh, Arizona, you didn't pick up any teams out there. You know, I would go to Diamondbacks games because their, their ballpark is amazing. That's what I've heard. You know, it's, yeah. it's really beautiful. And like, you know, obviously it's really hot because <laughs> it's in the desert, but right. the, um, the roof, they'll close the roof and, you know, turn the air conditioning on. And then when it's cool enough, like September, October, um, they'll open the roof and it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. So we would go to some of those games. I never really got into, you know, professional football or hockey or anything like that. Um, I obviously really like UF football. SEC football is amazing. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. Oh yeah. yeah but again, the Gators are not doing great this summer or this, uh, this season. You started off well, but it's not. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I don't know what happened there. <laughs> don't know what happened. We lost to Kentucky. I don't know how. <sighs> yeah. It's okay. It's right. <laughs> <laughs> always next year. Right. <laughs> Where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to? Japan. I would love to go to Japan. We were supposed to go to Japan, my duo partner and I, or my, my wife and I were supposed to go to Japan um, for one of the 2B Euphonium conferences mm. during the pandemic, but that got canceled and then moved. So now we're not even going to go there. But yeah, I just, I, I've heard such fantastic things about the country as a whole. And it's, you know, it's not a substantially large country, um, but there's just so much to do and so much to learn. And I think that that's, that's a place I want to go. Yeah. It was that uh iTech? Was that the conference? Yeah, it was it was iTech. Yeah, it was going to be um so they do like I think they do a two-year cycle mm-hmm. and rotate the international one um and then they have smaller conferences in between that. But yeah, this was going to be the international conference. It was going to be outside of the US for the first time in several years. It must have been spring 2020 or maybe the start of 
2021. I can't remember mm. when it was going to be scheduled. Those last two years, I, I don't even know what year we're in. Like, right. <laughs> it's weird. Yeah. Yeah. If you were to run into someone, meet someone and mm. on the, and, and I'm thinking more on this obscure end, but if you yeah. meet someone and they're like, Hey, I like this. And whatever they said, you'd be like, we're good. <laughs> What's that for you? I have to pick only one. You can, you can give more than one. Star Wars. If they, if they were pro Star Wars, I think we would be in a good place. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then, you know, I'm going to say whiskey, but that's more of a new thing. So okay. I think if I had to pick a, 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 a long standing one, it'd be Star Wars. Okay. Okay. Not, not as obscure as I was hoping, but I, I'll take it. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> white bread i (laughs) (laughs) oh no that's fair uh in a similar vein what is your go-to karaoke song (laughs) oh no i can't remember the name of it it's a queen song and i just know oh no now i'm on the spot oh is it um it's not bohemian rhapsody yes don't stop me now that's the one that's what i would do that's a good one. Yeah. yeah, hands down. Have you seen Paul Rudd do it? No. <laughs> it's it's it, when they did um on Fallon when they would do the um the karaoke in the in the studio. Mm-hmm. Paul Rudd does does it and it's it's pretty amazing. <laughs> awesome. So I'll have I, to look I would that definitely up. recommend to look at look that one up. Yeah, yeah, I'll have to look that up. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> All right. Uh funniest, strangest, or most bizarre performance moment. That involves you. I think it was my first DMA recital. I was performing Merlin. Mm-hmm. And I was, so this was the last piece on my program. I was in the first movement. Oh my which goodness. Is, last I don't, piece on the I don't program. know what I was thinking. I know. <laughs> Danielle, See, second piece at, 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 at furthest. I know. <laughs> you get yeah. that out of the way. <laughs> Absolutely. I am. Yeah. In hindsight, yeah. there were a lot of things I would have done differently, but <laughs> nonetheless, we, yeah. <laughs> we were the final piece of my program. Yeah. Uh, I was in the first movement. Mm-hmm. So it was very quiet and calm. And I yeah. hear the stage door open and I'm like, okay, well, whatever. Maybe the door popped open. I don't know what's happening. And I hear it shut. I finish the piece. I walk backstage and JB is there and he's like, great job. That was wonderful. He gave me a big hug and left. And then maybe an hour later he emailed me and he was like, yeah, I, I thought your recital was the hour following. And so I thought you were just kind of dress rehearsing. And so I walked out on stage and like, listened, just, you know, and I talked to um, other students who obviously were in the audience and they were like, Oh my God, what do we do? He's on stage. And he was out there for like a good minute. <laughs> like at some point it occurred to him that there were people in the audience. And so he just, yeah. But I love the fact that he was like, it was a great recital, even though he, he only walked on to the last piece. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Oh, oh, that's, that's amazing. (laughs) Yep. That's a good, good times. (laughs) Awesome. All right. Last question, Danielle. Uh, What one piece of art could be music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, anything has impacted you the most recently? That's a tough question. 
Well, this isn't a great note to end on. <laughs> I've been listening to Up First, which is an NPR podcast. Okay. Uh, and so it's it's all political. Mm-hmm. But it's we listen to it on our drive-in in the morning, and it gives me a summation of the things that have happened the day previously. And I think that it's a an important way to start my day. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say that one. Clues you in, I guess. It's yeah. like an easy way to just kind of give you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I get this little bite-sized, you know, set of information on on what's going on in the world without being inundated with too much. You know, I think that's that's one of the things. Like, I really struggle sometimes with social media and and things like that because it's just there's so much to have to take in. Yeah. Uh, so I, I really like I get the the most important parts. Have you ever read um, Heather Cox Richardson? Do you know mm-hmm. who that is? No. Nope. Nope. She's so this is the way that I've I tune into a lot of that stuff, but she's someone who she's a college professor, I think in Maine. But she writes, she does like in every in the last for the last like two years or more longer, she's been doing this like long Facebook post, and then that she's also got it on kind of like her own Substack. That's basically this uh historical perspective on what's going on today. Mm-hmm. And so it's both like a, here's the top story. And then it's a, here's how we got here, or here's how this is relevant yeah. from past history. And it's, it's always yeah, yeah. like a good, that kind of summation or kind of the framework kind of thing. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 That's great. Yeah. I, it's, it's not, it has nothing to do with, you know, me getting bored, sure. <laughs> you know, some, you know, it'll say like on some articles, it's like, it's a two minute read, you know, it, it's not that it's just, there's so much to take in. Yeah. It's tough to do so sometimes. So, yeah. yeah. All right, Danielle, we are done. Cool. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Yeah. Thanks for being I, here. I hope it, it went well. I hope it wasn't super boring. No, not at all. No, Good. it's great. <laughs> no, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, What a pleasure getting to chat with Danielle, both on this interview and a number of times throughout this past PASIC. We met up randomly at many of the concerts, as one does at the convention, and got caught up there. And that was a lot of fun. Best of luck to Danielle in her future endeavors, and I look forward to seeing where she moves on from here. This week's rave is the 2021 film Belfast, now playing in select theaters. Belfast is directed and written by Kenneth Branagh and stars Katrina Balfe, Jamie Dornan, Judy Dench, Kieran Hines, and Jude Hill as the film's director as a child. The film is a non-rose-colored look at a particular moment of growing up in the life of Kenneth Branagh in Belfast, Northern Ireland. It starts off appearing as if it will be this lovely view of family, village, young love, playfulness, but it immediately turns to taking place at the heights of the Northern Ireland troubles between Protestants and Catholics. The film chronicles this short period of time where the family decided for their own good to move out of Belfast to the UK and escape the issues going on there. I've read that this film has a lot of similarities with the 2017 film and a previous rave on the show, Roma. There's elements where that is true, particularly in the use of period staging and black-and-white photography, though Roma 
was definitely an epic. This movie comes in at a brisk 98 minutes. There's a whole lot to like about this film. The soundtrack was particularly fun for me, as it heavily features one of Ireland's most famous pop artists, Van Morrison. While the person, Van Morrison, seems to have fallen into the hole of conspiracy theories and other ideas. He put out amazing music in the 1960s and 70s, and much of that is part of the soundtrack of the film. Additionally, while the film is chronicling the local issues regarding the troubles and the violence it created and how it affected the family, particularly the father, as played by Jamie Dornan, it also creates moments where the young boy portraying Branagh is being swept up in the movies of his youth. There are a lot of clips of famous films that run throughout, and the actor being memorized by what he's seeing. Across the board, the performances are fantastic, though special word needs to be mentioned for Katrina Balfe, who plays Branagh's mother in the film. Balfe is best known for playing the lead Clara Randall in the TV series Outlander, and, according to her IMDb page, almost never seems to play contemporary roles. But she's tremendous as the emotional heart of the film, keeping the family together, and performs in a role that I really hope lands her an Oscar nomination. She and all of the performances are excellent throughout, and I really look forward to having more people see this film. So go see Belfast. It's in theaters and will be very soon streaming. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time for more of my interviews from PASIC performers. Until then.